Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up this hour... Art, for me, has been very, very good. It contributes to health and longevity. A local artist who's still learning and creating after more than a century on Earth. We'll talk with a sculptor, painter, and photographer about her new autobiography, Dancing in the Wonder, for 102 years. But first, a mystery. One that dates back 200 years. So if you could, follow me back. Wearing shorts and hiking boots, Mia Carey is navigating a small group of people through a 150 by 35 foot Georgetown lot. It's scruffy grass studded with stones, dirt, and bricks. Be careful, there are exposed bricks and stuff everywhere. Carey is a graduate student in archaeology at the University of Florida. And an intern with the D.C. Historic Preservation Office, she's spent much of her summer here at 3324 Dent Place, literally digging into history. Yeah, so if you come um, over here, this is what a shovel test pit looks like. Oh, wow. Since June, the Historic Preservation Office has been shoveling these holes across the lot. This one goes down 38 inches. Our deepest one was dug by Sade Reed. She's the assistant city archaeologist. She got down to 44. So we're in a competition to see who can get deeper. (laughs) It's part of the Yarrow Mamut Archaeology Project. Mia Carey is the field director and gives fence talks like this one. Each day her team is working at the site. The goal of the project is to find artifacts associated with Yarrow Mamut, an educated Muslim slave from West Africa who earned his freedom after 44 years and settled in Georgetown. Have we found any artifacts that could potentially be linked to Yarrow? We haven't processed them, so I can't definitively say yes, but we are finding um, 19th century ceramics and clay tobacco pipes. Carrie's PhD dissertation includes much about Yarrow, who was brought to America at age 16, able to read and write in Arabic. He grew up to become a respected entrepreneur, moneylender, and stock owner, and a rather well-known one at that. He became famous in 1819 because Charles Wilson Peale, who painted the presidential portraits, painted his portrait. And then in 1822... James Alexander Simpson painted Yara again. This is the portrait that hangs in the Peabody Room of the Georgetown Public Library. Carey says Yarrow developed quite the reputation in Georgetown, where the population was one-third black. For his industrious moral and honest nature. And for his position as a jack-of-all-trades. He was a brickmaker and a basket weaver. He was also, from 1796 until his death in 1823, a homeowner right here on this lot. When he built his house, what would we have seen here? Where exactly was he living? This was a log house. Looks like a log cabin, except it's got wood frame on the outside. James Johnston wrote the biography From Slave Ship to Harvard, Yarrow Mamut and the History of an African-American Family. As the author explains, Yarrow's log house no longer stands. At some point before 1886, it was torn down, burned down, fell down. And another house took its place after the Civil War. But even if Yarrow's house is gone, he might still be here. There's an obituary for him. Very unusual black man has got an obituary in 1823, and it said he was buried in the corner of his lot where he resorted to pray. And so that's why we believe it's the southeast corner, because it would be towards Mecca. The team has yet to dig deep enough to find a body. But back in 2012, knowing that Yarrow's remains might be there, Johnston got nervous when a developer wanted to build on this lot at 3324 Dent Place. I started saying to everyone, hey, there have only been two houses on this land, Yarrow's house and one other house. So the yard itself ought to be pure. In other words... Whatever Yarrow left there should still be there. In the end, the other house had been so painfully neglected that it had to be demolished. In its place, the property's owner wants to build two townhomes. 
In the meantime, he's granted the D.C. Historic Preservation Office permission to conduct a pro bono archaeological investigation. In March, the Advisory Neighborhood Commission moved to withhold any building permits until that investigation is complete. That was the first coup. We got basically a stop to the fast-track development. Kate Whitmore lived on the other side of Dent Place for years, never realizing the historical significance of the lot across the street. I had no clue that this was, in a way, hiding this incredible historic jewel. But James Johnston's revelations opened her eyes. Now she's helping raise funds to keep the Yarramamut archaeological project going. D.C. has a dedicated Ph.D. candidate, Mia Carey. And they have their staff and they have certain resources, but they don't have money for things like the ground-penetrating radar or the earth-moving equipment that they need in this narrow lot to get to where they need to go. The D.C. Historic Preservation Office estimates it would cost a few thousand for the radar and earth-moving equipment. In this case, a mini backhoe excavator that would dig far deeper than those shovel test pits. And Mia Carey is excited to see what they'll uncover in this neighborhood whose African-American history is often hidden from view. We know that Georgetown had a rich legacy, but we don't really know about their daily lives of these African-Americans. You never know what you're going to find. You never know what you can learn or how it can kind of change history. Once we start scratching beneath the surface. Curious about those fence talks at 3324 Dent Place? Or that portrait of Yaro Mamut at the Georgetown Library? You can find information and photographs on our website, metroconnection.org. During the Civil War, Virginia was the capital of the Confederacy. But Maryland, also a slave state, was caught in the middle between North and South. Officially, Maryland stayed with the Union, but residents signed up to fight wearing both Union blue and Confederate gray. Now, as states across the nation re-examine the public use of Confederate symbols, Marylands are coming in for scrutiny, too. In Montgomery County this week, County Executive Isaiah Leggett ordered the removal of a Confederate soldier statue in Rockville. But as Maryland reporter Matt Bush tells us, it may be just the beginning of the latest battle over the old line state's Civil War history. If you didn't know it was there, it would be easy to walk past the statue without noticing it. It stands shaded by trees in a very busy area of Rockville, sandwiched between the town center and the newer courthouses. But Gary Wessels knows where to find it. Uh, years ago, it used to sit out front where when you came up the main road in Rockville, it was there in front of the courthouse. And as they reconstructed Rockville, they moved the statue over here on the side. Count the lifelong Montgomery County resident among those who don't want to see the statue moved again, calling it part of history. It is as important to our history as the reconstructed slave cabins that we now have done in Montgomery County. It does not make sense to have signs saying uh, Underground Railroad, slave cabins and things like this unless you know 
that in fact this was a southern area. How southern Montgomery County was at the time of the war is still up for debate. But one thing is for sure, according to Matt Logan, the executive director of the county's historical society. This was a county that I believe in 1860 only garnered a handful of votes for Abraham Lincoln. The 16th president was even more detested in Baltimore, where he had to escape an assassination attempt in February 1861 on his way to be inaugurated in D.C. Two months later, after the Confederate attack on Fort Sumter, which started the Civil War, Lincoln called for thousands of volunteers to serve in the Union Army. But Paul Bessel says there was a problem. Washington, D.C. was located in the middle of Virginia and Maryland, both of which had Southern sympathies. Bessel, a retired lawyer who now spends much of his time studying the Civil War, says Lincoln needed troops to defend the capital city immediately. Exactly one week after Fort Sumter, troops from Massachusetts reached Baltimore by train. In Maryland at that time, the railroads from the north and the south didn't connect. So if you were coming from the north, you had to get off the railroad train and walk, I think, about half a mile to the other railroad train to go to Washington. As those soldiers moved between the two rail lines, they were attacked by Confederate sympathizers. Four soldiers were killed and more than 30 were wounded. Twelve civilians died as well. The incident spurred Maryland native James Ryder Randall to write the poem, Maryland, My Maryland. You're not having a Christmas in July moment. The poem was set to the melody of O Tannenbaum, or O Christmas Tree in English. The first verse, though, leaves no doubt who its author sided with. The despot's heel is on thy shore, Maryland, my Maryland. His touch is at thy temple door. The despot, if you couldn't tell, is Abraham Lincoln. But the song doesn't stop there, according to Paul Bessel. The patriotic gore that was shed in Baltimore. Avenge the patriotic gore that flecked the streets of Baltimore. Meaning the patriotic gore of the attackers, not of the American soldiers. And he referred to the American soldiers, his exact words, as northern scum. Huzzah, she spurns the northern scum. She breathes, she burns, she'll come, she'll come. Maryland, my Maryland. Bessel started an online petition asking the General Assembly to strip Maryland My Maryland as the state song and hold a contest to find a new one, just as neighboring Virginia did. Because the Maryland state song glorifies murderers. It's not the first time someone has tried to change the song, and it won't be the last. But Larry Hogan is unlikely to be the governor to sign off on that. At a press conference earlier this month, he was asked about whether the state should look at changing or removing symbols with ties to the Confederacy. I support uh, what's going on in South Carolina with the removal of the flag from there. We don't, we don't fly Confederate flags over the state house here in, in Annapolis, so that's not an issue. Um, some of this other stuff, to me, is really um, going too far, and it's political correctness run amok. But Paul Bessel remains undeterred. He thinks they can convince the governor to change his mind. I think he's a decent man, and I think once he knows the details, he'll say he agrees. Plus, he could be the chairman of the commission to pick a new song. A contest could take a while, though. Virginia's new state song, Our Great Virginia, was officially adopted at the beginning of this month. That's almost 20 years after the General Assembly announced a contest to replace Carry Me Back to Old Virginia, which is now Virginia's state song emeritus. I'm Matt Bush. Time for a break, but when we get back... When I was younger, I did used to get made fun of because I'd wear the Speedos. And, you know, you don't see too many black guys walking around with Speedos or swimming in general. 
We dive into the deep end of Rosedale Pool in Ward 6 as we continue our series on DC's public pools. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. It's time to dive into the next part of our series on DC's free public swimming pools. Throughout their history, swimming pools have been both socially and culturally contested spaces. I'm going to love this pool to the day I die. When I tell my friends, oh, I'm going to the public pool, they're kind of skeptical about it. The demographics have definitely changed. <laughs> this is like an incredibly nice pool. Since swimmer Michael Phelps brought home eight gold medals in the 2008 Olympics, the sport's popularity in the U.S. has skyrocketed. But in the early 1900s, we saw another competitive swimming boom. In Washington, the federal government built pools across the city, including two state-of-the-art facilities for black residents. Swimming became so big that all the local schools began forming their own teams. One swim meet at Banneker Pool featured teams from 19 public schools, and the swimmers were nearly all black. Today, the demographic makeup of most competitive swim programs is much different. But a kids' swim league in the district is working to change that. Lauren Ober has more on efforts to make the sport of swimming a little more diverse. The Rosedale Tigerfish are pumped for their first swim meet of the season. Hello! How are you saying? This is Rosedale Swim Team. <laughs> the competition looks fierce. There are the Upshur Penguins, the Banneker Barracudas, and the Fort Stanton Aqua Blazers, among others. 18 teams in all compete in the D.C. Summer Swim League. Tonight's meet at Oxen Run Pool in Southeast will be the first time many of the kids will have swum competitively. For some, it's a little nerve-wracking. So pep talks are in order. You got this! Don't be... You gotta have courage in yourself. Come on. Sydney Klo is about to swim in her first race ever. It's the 25-meter freestyle, and the seven-year-old looks ready. She stands at the edge of the pool, adjusts her goggles, and gets in the dive position. Arms extended, one hand on top of the other. The little girl pulls ahead of the other swimmers almost immediately. It's pretty clear she has some talent. Sydney is the type of swimmer the D.C. Summer Swim League is trying to cultivate, a kid who wants to swim competitively and has the drive to do it. Here's how she described her race. It was fun and the water was cold and I swam really fast. The swim league is run by the D.C. Department of Parks and Recreation, Rob Green, the director of the program, explains the league has been around since the 80s. And it's really a program designed to get interest in competitive swimming throughout the city. Not every ward has an indoor pool that's walking distance to all of our residents, so the summertime is really the best opportunity to get people interested in the sport of competitive swimming. Green is a D.C. native, and he's sort of a swimming in his blood. 
his father was a coach who grew up swimming at Banneker Pool in Northwest. Green says when he was a kid, there weren't too many other black kids swimming competitively. When I was younger, I did used to get made fun of because I'd wear the Speedos. And, you know, you don't see too many black guys walking around with Speedos or swimming in general. Black people don't swim. It's a stereotype we've all likely heard. And it's not entirely false. Jeff Wiltsey, a professor at the University of Montana, is the author of Contested Waters, a social history of swimming pools in America. His research suggests that today half as many blacks swim as whites. The main reason for that? It comes, I think, in part from the discriminatory access that black Americans have had to swim facilities and swim lessons during the 20th century. Meaning that many cities didn't allow black people to use public pools that were considered white. But then they also didn't provide many pools that people of color could use. So... With white families, it's been passed down for generation to generation to know how to swim, to belong to a swim team. But because of this past discrimination, it never became a common part of black Americans' recreational culture. Rob Green of DPR suggests another reason why black participation in competitive swimming is low relative to whites. You're also competing with sports like basketball, football, that are always on TV. When you're a young person, you kind of gravitate towards that. Swimming, it's an elitist sport. It's not on TV. You really only see it once every four years. There's nothing Green and his crew at DPR can do to get more swimming on, say, Sports Center, but they can do something about the sport's elitist vibe. One step is to remove the barriers to entry. So the swim league is free for any kid in D.C. under the age of 14. Practice times are flexible, and speedos are optional. Rosedale's coach Dana Page says she's seen a jump in participation. Only three kids signed up during her first year. But this year, the team is 19 strong and made up of all types of kids. I think our team is the most diverse of all the pools. Sydney Clough is one of Paige's smallest and youngest swimmers. But her mother, Tamara, says exposing her to swimming young was a priority. It's a life skill, and to be honest, a lot of African-American kids do not know how to swim. And I wanted my kids to be able to swim and swim correctly with the proper strokes and everything. Whether they decided to be competitive or not, I wanted to make sure that they were swimmers. At the end of the first swim meet, Sydney makes off with two first place ribbons, one for freestyle and one for flutter kicking. That whole black people don't swim thing? She's not buying it. I'm Lauren Ober. Rebecca Gregorio contributed to this story. You've heard about the competitions at Oxen Run. Now see them. We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. And you can check out all the pools we're visiting this summer and listen to our stories with a special interactive map. Again, you'll find it at metroconnection.org. Dan Silverman's name might not ring a bell, but you likely know his online persona. 
As the Prince of Petworth, he's become one of D.C.'s most popular bloggers, chronicling the changes sweeping many neighborhoods east of Rock Creek Park. Dan's posts often include scuttlebutt on the latest beer garden, coffee shop, or yoga studio. But earlier this month, the prince posted something surprising. He no longer resides in Petworth. As he puts it, he was facing a dilemma many young parents encounter. The whole calculation changes with children. I mean, it's like two different worlds. It was a choice, he says, between the neighborhood he loved and the kinds of schools he wanted. Silverman now lives west of Rock Creek in North Cleveland Park. That's where he sat down with reporter Martin Ostermule to talk about the move and what it's like raising children in an ever-evolving city. You've been identified with Petworth since you started the blog, you know, this was, what, 10 years ago. Why don't you explain why did you guys choose to move? Well, let me first say it was an excruciating decision. I mean, I think we went back and forth, and me personally, I went back and forth about a thousand times. Some days I'd wake up and say, yes, we have to move. And then I come home that night and I say, there's no way we're moving. I'm definitely not moving. But at the end of the day, we ultimately decided because of schools and the school system. Last year, we were in the zone for Powell, which is sort of an up and coming um, elementary school that had a wonderful uh, principal who unfortunately just left. But my neighbors who had kids spoke very, very highly of it. So then we got zoned out. Literally, we were on the dividing line. So it just started the discussion again of, you know, what are we going to do about schools? Looking back when you first moved to Petworth, did you ever think you'd come to the point where you'd say, I, you know, I've got to think about schools of all things? Yeah. No way. No way. I mean, it's funny because I'm leaving Petworth now just when it has become exactly what I hoped it would become. I mean, I always loved Petworth from, from the beginning, but now you're starting to see all these cool restaurants and cool bars and a great farmer's market and a jazz series. I mean, it's such a fun place to live. And I'm like, okay, I'm leaving. I recognize that I'm extremely lucky to even have this debate, this option. A lot of people you know, have their school, whatever school they're zoned into. That's it. They, they can't do anything. You know, looking at it from your perspective, having the blog for as long as you've had it and having lived in Petworth for as long as you did, what did you think about this whole debate about gentrification and displacement? I mean, was it tough for you to handle, given that you're blogging about kind of yeah. these quote-unquote positive changes happening yeah. in these neighborhoods? Some people have painted me with the spokesman of the gentrifier, which I've never, uh, I've never taken to personally. Not that the site doesn't attract a lot of uh, gentrifiers or revitalizers or whatever the word you want to use is. But the interesting thing is that Petworth was always very different in terms of gentrification and, and revitalization, whatever, because it was a much slower growth. You know, in Columbia Heights, you had blocks of changes where all of a sudden DC USA went up and new apartment buildings and condos went up uh, and it was very visible. Whereas in Petworth, it was a much, 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 much slower where I actually moved in in the beginning of 2003. I mean, there wasn't any like visible change until like 2007, 2008. You know, it was still the same neighbors. You know, it was, I didn't see people, air quote, getting pushed out. I didn't hear these stories. Um, I mean, I knew that they were happening, but it wasn't something that I personally uh, experienced. So it's like when people, when people try to label me personally, 
you know, as, as the cause or the spokesman or whatever. I mean, I was like, what are you talking about? And, you know, it's funny. When the market uh, started really heating up that first time, which was, I think, 2007 or something like that, my neighbor across the street, he, came over, he comes over to me and he puts his arm around me when, when we saw a house for sale down the block, which at that time was like for $350,000, which was a very high price at that time. And he puts his arm around my shoulder and he goes, they're trying to push us out. And he said, they're trying to push us out, me and him. Now they're trying to push me out. So, you know, when, when people tried to label me as, you know, as, as Dan Silverman or the Prince of Petworth versus the old school Petworth, I was like, what are you talking about? I'm more old school Petworth than some old school Petworth. And then last question. There's one tagline I've always been fascinated by and I always wanted to ask you about, which is, I think it's um, live the beautiful life or love the beautiful life or something along those lines. It's been on your site for a while and you've, it's been alluded to in a lot of posts and things like that. What exactly is the beautiful life to you and has it changed in the last couple of years? That's a good question. It's welcome to the beautiful life. Uh, when I first moved to Petworth and learned a little bit more about it, it had an extremely bad reputation. It was not too dissimilar to some, say, parts of Anacostia nowadays or some parts of Southeast. People associated Petworth with crime. And very early on, having been embraced by my neighbors and the community, I was like, there's so much to love about this neighborhood. So I'm going to appreciate the beautiful things, not just the shootings and the drugs and, you know, the, the, the negative aspects. I wanted to focus on the good things because nobody was talking about the good things. You know, there's always going to be good things and bad things happening in the district. But if you focus only on the bad things or you focus too much on the bad things, you're, you're going to be a miserable person. So while you can't ignore some of the bad things that are happening, you always have to remember what the beautiful life is or else you'll be unhappy. That was Dan Silverman, a.k.a. the Prince of Petworth, talking with WAMU's Martin Ostermule. think of Washington, D.C. as a particularly wild place, but the city is actually teeming with wildlife. You'll find some plants and animals in more secluded spots, such as Rock Creek Park and Kenilworth Aquatic Gardens, but plenty of flora and fauna are hiding in plain sight, living in the backyards and gardens of city residents. Some of these species are threatened, and the district hasn't really had a unified plan for protecting them. But that's about to change. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson headed out with a D.C. wildlife biologist to find out why. Damien Ossie has been exploring D.C.'s wilder elements for the District Department of the Environment for nearly a decade. He's got some favorite spots in the city, and he's brought me to one of them, or above one of them to be exact. We're on Chain Bridge, overlooking the Potomac River Gorge. It's a bit tough to put the loud whizzing of traffic out of your mind, but the majesty of the view helps. The Potomac Gorge is one of the most ecologically, biologically diverse places in the United States, actually. 
It's a study in green. From the almost fluorescent hues of the tiny duckweed plants that cover the surface of wetland ponds to the more muted shades of sycamore leaves. There's been about 1,400 plant species identified in the Potomac Gorge area. So from Georgetown just about to Great Falls, maybe a little bit farther north. Ossie and his colleagues can cough up numbers like that in part because they've spent the past 10 years cataloging all the wildlife in the city limits. The culmination of the research will be a new wildlife action plan. It will include, for the first time in the city's history, strategies for protecting threatened species and their habitats. There is an existing plan crafted in 2005, but Ossie says it wasn't backed by much hands-on fieldwork. We didn't have very much data on the wildlife that was here. Uh, we relied a lot on historical data and uh, expert opinion. But years spent trudging through city forests, counting critters and storing specimens has filled that void and informed the plan. It will include a new list of species of greatest conservation need in the district. The updated list is going to be about 200. I think 198. That is an increase of about 50 species. The number swelled in part thanks to additions such as the monarch butterfly, an insect under threat across the country. But there are also entire groups of animals that simply weren't considered a decade ago. So we added four bee species. We didn't have any bee species on the list before. Um, we added a whole group of terrestrial snails. There are also some real surprises on the list of species in need of help. This includes a couple of small mammals on surplus in the suburbs, the cuddly cottontail rabbit and a not-so-cuddly marsupial. You wouldn't believe it, but the opossum is a species of greatest conservation need in the district. In both cases, Ossie says the biggest threat is likely disappearing habitat. But for possums, competition from raccoons and predation from coyotes could also be a factor. But whether protecting possums or cottontails, Ossie says the new wildlife action plan should provide guidance where there's really never been any before. Now that we have the data and we have good, uh, we have good knowledge of what species are here, we can go out and start to improve habitat for those species. Ossie leads the way down a path off the CNO Canal and into the wetland forest that buffers the Potomac. It's even greener beneath the canopy. It's beautiful, but for Ossie, who's a plant specialist, it seems like every third leaf merits a frown. If you know invasive plants and you see a wall of green, you say, oh, there's a whole bunch of porcelain berry, which is an invasive vine that's related to grapes. And, and you, know, you just want to go and cut those vines. With reams of new data acting as their guide, Ossie says the new wildlife action plan will let his colleagues do less counting and collecting and more proactive fieldwork such as invasive plant removal and even habitat creation. Ossie says meadow ecosystems, fields of tall grass that can provide important shelter to all sorts of animals, are in especially short supply in the district. Uh, but there are a lot of places all throughout the city where there's mowed grass, where with a little bit of work, a little bit of uh, going in and planting native plants and, and stopping mowing activity, we could create habitat that's meadow habitat. A draft of the new plan goes up on the district's Department of the Environment website at the end of this month, and DDOE is giving city residents a month to comment on the 200-page document. After that, perhaps the nation's capital will finally have a real blueprint for managing its wildest denizens. I'm Jonathan Wilson. In a minute, 
a 102-year-old artist who took up a brand new digital medium in her 80s. I went to Corcoran. I was 88. Everybody else was less than 21. I didn't even know how to turn a computer on or off. That's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up, ever dream of slashing your commute time in the D.C. region? New magnetic levitation trains could help make such high-speed travel a reality. But first, a woman who has remained young at heart by creating art. Marilee Shapiro-Asher lives at Chevy Chase House, a retirement home in northwest D.C. But unlike most units in the building, Marilee's is especially large. See, this is two apartments put together. And while its second bathroom has the usual toilet, sink, and bathtub... I covered the bathtub. (laughs) The tub is covered with small pieces of sculpture. The box one is fabricated. The others are bronze. I think it's a great idea to turn your bathroom into a gallery. Yeah. (laughs) But it needs to be more gallery and less bathroom. You're on your way. Marilee created these sculptures along with numerous other artworks in her home, like etchings, drawings, and... I've got stuff in the bin, prints, and... Can we flip through a couple? Sure. Photographs. That's one of those early ones. And that's 2003. Pardon me? So that's 2003. You consider that very early? 2003. And I think it was 2000 when I went to Corcoran for the first and started. Indeed, Marilee took her first digital art class at the Corcoran School of Art in the year 2000. But here's the thing. At the time, she was 88 years old. Everybody else was less than 21. <laughs> I didn't even know how to turn a computer on or off. Now, at the tender age of 102, Marilee Shapiro-Asher is tackling Photoshop, manipulating the images she takes on her Nikon digital camera. Marilee's career as an artist spans 80-some years and goes back to her native Chicago, where she grew up just two blocks from where President and Mrs. Obama's house stands today. She covers it all in her new autobiography, Dancing in the Wonder for 102 Years. As we sit in her spacious living room overlooking Connecticut Avenue, she explains how she came up with that title. In the book, a few pages in, is the song, Dancing in the Dark. And this is a line from the song. It goes like, uh, dancing in the dark till the tune ends. We're dancing in the dark and it soon ends. We're waltzing in the wonder of why we're here. Time hurries by. We're here and gone. That was a very popular song in, I would say, the 1930s, which I always remembered, and it just seemed like that's what we are doing. In 1943, you moved here to Washington, D.C. Can you talk about what brought about that move, why you relocated? World War II. My husband was a lawyer. Bernie Shapiro was his name. And he came to Washington as a lawyer for the Board of Economic Warfare. I was pregnant. There was no housing or any medical care assured in Washington. So I stayed in Chicago till the baby came. And then when he was three months, in April of 43, I came to Washington. And 
at first I was very homesick. I was boiling diapers and bottles in a third floor apartment without air conditioning. It was rough. But anyway, I came to love Washington and my husband was seduced immediately to stay here. He didn't ever want to go back to Chicago. So here we are. Well, I want to talk about your art. It seems like it's, it's run in your family. Your mother started painting at age 79. Your sister Eleanor was quite an artist too and you have some of her pieces here in your, in your house. How did you get your start? I don't remember the motivation. I remember that after I was married, I had either gone to school or worked as an emergency uh, social worker during the Depression, and I had nothing to do, and I went out and bought some clay and began to play with it. And once I began, you know, I just had found it. That was it. And in terms of your artistic life in D.C., it was around 1960 that you and some fellow artists decided you were going to start your own gallery. And it was in the coach house belonging to what was then the Phillips Gallery. And today, it would be located in the parking lot of the Cosmos Club near DuPont Circle. What inspired this group of you to found the Associated Artists Gallery? My friend Dorothy Goldberg, who was Arthur Goldberg's wife, who subsequently became Secretary of Labor under Kennedy, she had been sharing the space of the Phillips Coach House with some other painters. Dorothy was able to get the lease for herself, and she and I decided to invite a couple of other artists in a cooperative gallery. But talk about press. We were in the style section every day because of the connection to the Kennedys. We also gave a show to the Barnett Aden Gallery, which was the only and first black gallery in Washington. We also gave a show to the paintings of Henry Miller, the author, and that created quite a stir because there were some very bad words incorporated in the paintings. One more question. On November 17th, you're going to be 103 years old, and I'm sure everyone asks you this. I'm sure you're sick of hearing this question. But what is your secret? How can we all live life so fully after a century on Earth? Well, I think most important is your body. Exercise. Even today, I can go from a condition of almost stupor into being alive by getting up and taking a walk. Beyond that, I think that art for me has been very, very good because there's something that you want to do. There's some reason to get up in the morning. I believe that it contributes to health and longevity. That was 102-year-old artist Marilee Shapiro-Asher. Her new autobiography, Dancing in the Wonder for 102 Years, is out now. You can see a photo of Marilee working in her home studio and hear her reading her book's rather distinctive dedication on our website, metroconnection.org. Dancing in the dark Till the tune 
seems we're dancing in the dark And it soon ends we're waltzing in the wonder Ask folks around our region, and they'll no doubt tell you one of the biggest headaches about living here is getting around. Whether it's brutal traffic on the Beltway or Metro's daily breakdowns and delays, commuting can be tough. But picture this, traveling from downtown Washington to Baltimore in 15 minutes, or from D.C. to BWI in eight minutes. It may sound like science fiction, but in other parts of the world, high-speed rail has been a reality for years. Transportation reporter Martin DeCaro tells us about one company's vision to bring Japanese train technology to Maryland. The sound overwhelms your ears as you stand on the platform. The steel wheels of a marked train riding the steel tracks on the way to D.C., carrying commuters like Ted Niblock. He makes the Baltimore to Washington trip twice a week. Rail travel in the U.S. is pathetic. We don't invest enough. He says his commute takes about 45 minutes. To shorten that trip to 15 minutes, it would take leaving the 19th century steel-on-steel technology behind and making the leap to maglev. We should have it. We're never going to get it. They won't spend the money. It's hard to blame them for that attitude. There's no high-speed rail of any kind in the United States, let alone maglev. Oh, what's maglev? It's short for magnetic levitation. Magnets lift and propel the train. There's no friction. And Japan's maglev just broke its own speed record, hitting 374 miles an hour on a test track. And that's what 374 miles an hour sounded like blowing by reporters trying to snap photos of a blur. Even watching it on YouTube is awesome. Imagine riding one. Maryland Transportation Secretary Pete Ron did. The experience of riding on superconducting maglev was something that greatly exceeded my expectations. Last month, Ron traveled to Japan with Governor Larry Hogan, where they rode the fastest train in the world. Their ride traveled a mere 314 miles an hour. By comparison, Amtrak's fastest trains average about 80 miles an hour between D.C. and New York. It has to resemble the sense that people had when they rode on a 707 Boeing for the first time, going from prop planes to a jet. The governor called it incredible, and he and Ron want to bring that technology to Maryland. It was amazing to me that this accelerated to 314 miles an hour in practically no time at all, and the ride was so smooth that you could have easily poured yourself a cup of coffee while you were standing in the middle of the aisle. So how does Maryland plan to build a maglev? Andy Dentamaro is the maglev man at the Maryland Department of Transportation. First and foremost, I think it's important to, to recognize that this is a private sector-led project. Meaning no state dollars are on the line. Maryland is applying for a $28 million federal grant to figure out how to build and where to place a 40-mile maglev line. The study could take three or four years. It's frustrating to me to sort of see America fall further and further behind the rest of the world. Wayne Rogers is the chief executive at the Northeast Maglev. His company's been pursuing maglev without success since 2010. He says the country can't afford to dismiss his idea any longer. I think we really have to understand that infrastructure is key to our economy. Our prosperity in the future is really tied to what is our infrastructure like. What are some of the misconceptions people have about maglev? That it's not 
real today? It's real in only three countries, Japan, China, and South Korea. The Central Japan Railway is using profits from its bullet train to build out its maglev line. Rogers says the private sector would take the lead in Maryland, too, with the support of a $5 billion loan from the Bank of Japan. For most of the American people, we don't even really know how far behind on some of these issues we've fallen. Japan's first bullet train, Shinkansen in Japanese, opened in 1964. I wish we had started this high-speed rail 50 years ago. Rogers is right. Maglev is not fantasy, but that doesn't mean it'll be easy to import to America. He estimates it'll take about 10 years and at least $10 billion just to connect D.C. and Baltimore, mostly through underground tunnels. To reach New York, about another 15 to 20 years. But maglev proponents say the challenge is not technological. It's a political issue. Kevin Coates is a maglev consultant who's traveled many times to China and Japan. He says there's an important reason why Japan is investing in maglev instead of another steel-on-steel railroad. Maintenance. And all you have to do is look at YouTube video, NHK video of high-speed rail maintenance in Japan. As a wheel rolls along a track, the surface is gradually worn away, changing its shape. And you would be shocked at how much effort goes into keeping those trains in operation. Trains design safety and The Japanese of all the countries in the world know how much it costs to keep high-speed trains running. Maglev trains have one moving part, the train. If you look at the maintenance facility of, say, Metro or a bus terminal, uh, there's a lot of activity, a lot of grease, a lot of noise, a lot of machines running. And in the Shanghai maintenance facility, it's like the Maytag repairman shop. There was hardly anything going on because this is an electronic transportation system. In Japan, the owners of the oldest bullet train in the world are shifting to maglev. If the operators of that line, with 50 years experience, are deciding to go with maglev for the next Shinkansen, then maybe we ought to be paying attention to that decision. The Hogan administration is. In fact, Maryland is currently the only state pursuing federal money to study maglev. If it's ever built, the obvious question is who would ride it, and that question is harder to answer once you know fares could be $1 to $2 per mile. Round trip D.C. to Baltimore, at least 80 bucks. I'm Martin DeCaro. We'll wrap up today's show with the story of another Japanese import. Not a fast train, but a rather unusual form of entertainment. For a few years now, people in Japan have been flocking to so-called escape rooms. Basically, they pay money to get locked in a room where they scramble to decipher clues in order to find freedom. The craze has spread across Asia, Europe, and beyond. In just the past year, we've seen these kinds of venues pop up in our region. And as Jamie Rapp tells us, more are on the way. That cheering is the result of 11 secret agents completing their mission and escaping the room they've been locked in for the past 45 minutes. This is Escape Room Live, which opened in DC's Glover Park last fall. Carolyn Waldron brought her kids and grandkids here for today's important mission. They've been searching bookcases and cabinets, looking for the clues that'll lead to their freedom. In just the first five minutes, Carolyn's grandson finds something important. There's a key here or under here. Yeah, look it. 
Each of our region's newly opened escape rooms offers something different. At Room Escape Adventures in College Park, your goal is to get away from a hungry zombie. Here at Escape Room Live, the game is all about secret agent missions. My friends and I were one of the first visitors to come through, and it was just such a great experience. It was just something so fun. Time went by so quickly. Olivia Chang is the Director of Operations at Escape Room Live. She first came here as a visitor and liked the concept so much, she decided to work here full-time. She says escape rooms foster teamwork in interesting ways. You sort of are encouraged to work with each other, and it's something that you sort of forget to do. In April, another escape room, Escape Artist DC, opened on Capitol Hill. Here, the visitor can play the role of either a secret detective or a congressman's assistant. Milan Raj is the owner of Escape Artist DC. With a background in engineering and a love of storytelling, he wanted to create a business that combined the two. I signed the lease, I think, end of February, and I, and then I think within 50 days, I had two escape rooms ready. <laughs> it was a crazy, crazy one month. Raj created the rooms by coming up with a basic story and leaving blanks in that story that are filled in with each clue. So I decided that since it's DC, the I thought about two themes, right? DC is very political, and at the same time, it's, there's a lot of um, artistic folks here. So I wanted to have one room which is related to politics. And since I love art, I wanted to do other one related to gallery. Raj and another staffer, Miranda Houchins, give hints to visitors as they try to escape each room. And you guys, you checked out the bookcase, right? Have you been reading some books in there? I think you should check out the Houchins says this concept seems to appeal to both locals and out-of-town yeah. visitors. We've had some people from France, we've had people from India. Um, we do get a lot of students as well, which is really cool, and we get a lot of families. Escape Artist DC gets about 250 visitors per week. At Escape Room Live, about 680 people are visiting each week, and a second location is slated to open in Arlington at the end of the month. Escape Artist owner Milan Raj says the concept is taking off here because of DC's unique demographics. DC especially has a very large population of educated, uh, qualified professionals. And also, people are always looking to do something different. After all, he says, you can only go out for dinner and a movie so many times. I'm Jamie Rapp. And that's Metro Connection for this week. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. We list all the music we use on metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can find links to our Twitter feed and Facebook page so you can stay in touch with us all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.